You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Last month, Merriam-Webster Publishing Company, the ones that give you Webster's Dictionary, uh, announced their Word of the Year for 2023. Uh, This is something they do every year. It's announced toward the end of that year to kind of say this word reflects what the previous year was all about, what was culturally relevant uh, and meaningful to a majority of Americans. Um, The winner this year, uh, beat out words like AI and deep fake. The winner was authentic. That the people are looking and interested in what is authentic, what is real. And that kind of got me thinking about what what should an authentic follower of Christ look like? Or what does a real follower of Jesus Christ look like? And so we're going to take uh, some time in the next couple of weeks to look at the Beatitudes. And that's what you find right here in Matthew chapter 5. Basically, verses 1 through 12 are what's commonly called the Beatitudes. But before we dive right into the first Beatitude, I want you to just open your Bibles to Matthew 5 and first just consider the context. So this is one of those rules of biblical teaching, interpretation. I think as a congregation, we've gotten down well. Uh, Always look at the context. So it's in the Gospel of Matthew, the opening gospel. You may be familiar how Matthew, the former tax collector, uh, gave up that occupation and became a disciple of Jesus Christ. So it's in the context of Matthew. It's probably about a year and a half to two years into Jesus' public ministry. So it's not right in the very beginning of his ministry, but he's been teaching, he's been preaching, he's been performing miracles. And now you have this sort of in-depth look at what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You'll notice it's referenced as being the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And the Sermon on the Mount is... Matthew 5 through 7. So the Beatitudes make up just a small part of the larger Sermon on the Mount. And it might be well for us because Sermon on the Mount simply means he gave this on some kind of elevated hillside. Uh, It might be better for us to think of the Sermon on the Mount as being discourses on discipleship. 
That, that's really what Jesus is going to be talking to them about. What does an authentic follower of Jesus Christ look like? Uh, and in fact, the Sermon on the Mount here, or Discourses on Discipleship in 5 through 7, are the first of five major blocks of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. So there's certainly some preeminence and importance of putting this block and arranging it as being first. Uh, so we will get to the first beatitude, but I want to look at one other principle. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, and look with me at verses 24 through 27. So I said this makes up a long series of instructions. Well, Matthew 7, 24 through 27 is the conclusion of this first long series of teaching. And it reminds us, what is the goal of this? Like, why did Jesus instruct them on the Beatitudes? Why did he go into further teaching about judging others, what that looks like, what it should look like? Why did he talk about sin the way he did? Well, listen to what he says toward the end of this teaching series, beginning at verse 24. And you'll recognize the context immediately. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. That's just to remind us what we're going to be studying in the beginning of chapter 5 was meant to be applied. It, the purpose of this is application. It's not just entertainment, or it's not to just fill and amuse the disciples with some kind of teaching. It, it was meant to affect their lives on a daily basis. So with that in mind, come back now to Matthew chapter 5. And as we look at the first beatitude, you'll see that technically in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Uh, you may be wondering, why is it called the Beatitudes? Because you don't see the word Beatitude anywhere there. Um, that's because the, the first word, blessed, based off a Latin translation, gives you the term Beatitudes. And it's just kind of been absorbed into sort of that's a good name for this section. So it's really all about blessed. And so our study of the first beatitude has to begin with simply the meaning of the word blessed. But what does that mean? Obviously, it's very important because it's the first word in verses 3 through 11. And although the attitudes will vary in length, as you see when you get towards the bottom of them, uh, blessed is a key term. If we're not clear on that, we're, we're going to miss the intent of the teaching. So there are some different translations. Some translations have happy. But I think most of us would pick up on that's not really the best term to use because happy tends to equate with mood, circumstances, things like that. Uh, another translation has fortunate. Fortunate are those. That's a little bit closer. Uh, it kind of implies somehow that you're, you're favored uh, above something. 
But one of the better terms I've seen in Weiss's translation was he put it this way, spiritually prosperous. So I want you to think about that. Instead of blessed, think of it being equated to something about spiritually prosperous. Again, not prosperous, but spiritually prosperous. Let me give you a little bit of background. You know, many of these words in the New Testament came out of the culture of that day. And yet, through the inspiration of God and the Holy Spirit, they're given deeper, richer, significant meaning. So this word, blessed, was a word floating around in, in a pagan culture. And it was a word that typically described the character of their false gods. And what this word tended to emphasize was that to say that your gods were blessed men, they're not like us, that they're above care and worry. That they don't have any cares and worries because they're, they're gods. And there's something about that that sort of resonates with this thought, well, wait a minute, if, if we take that word now and use it to speak of being spiritually prosperous, is it saying in some way these Beatitudes remind us how as Christians we, we are to live in the world, but in a sense above the world? That, that we're not to live just like everyone else who has cares and worries who doesn't know Jesus Christ. So let's take a closer look here at this, and, and we're going to compare it to the use of a, the word blessed later in the New Testament. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and verses 3 through 6. So Paul uses the word blessed here, but it is a different word. Uh, but, but part of the root is similar. Uh, this sense of to speak well of, uh, to be favored by, which is why I said one of the translations is to render it fortunate are the poor in spirit. But look at Ephesians 1, and listen to the use of the word blessed here in verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And so you have two aspects there Paul's picking up on. One is, we bless God. Now, you can right away pick up, that's a different kind of emphasis there. We don't do God favors. We're not a greater party extending some kind of blessing on God. So here, when we bless God, what we're actually doing is we're speaking well. We're acknowledging correctly his character. Because this particular word in Ephesians 1.3, blessed be, it's the root for our word eulogy. And so if you think, if you're at a funeral, you hear a eulogy, it's generally one who is speaking well of the person who has passed away. And so here Paul's saying, as, as believers, we speak well of God. We, we praise him. We acknowledge. But then on the other hand, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. We are spiritually 
prosperous in Christ Jesus. Now you may wonder, why would that need to be emphasized? Well, let me ask you, does it sometimes look in life as a Christian that that's not the reality? That there are trials, that there are difficulties, that the things are not going your way or the way you would hope maybe God would work, and it seems counterintuitive to that. And that's one of the things you're to notice with these Beatitudes. They're, they're not just counterintuitive, like in the sense that they, they're the opposite of what you would think, but, but they're countercultural. Like these completely do not fit in with what our world would say is how to get ahead or how to be prosperous or even how to be quote unquote happy or live a meaningful life. Let's go back to Matthew chapter five and consider now this emphasis here where in verse three, which is the only verse on the first beatitude, um, there is a cross-section in Luke where he mentions a few of these, but Matthew's list is more elaborate, and that's why we're studying his list. But notice again what it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So now clearly, blessed means spiritually prosperous, but yet he's already thrown kind of a, a wrench in there and saying, you're prosperous, but you're poor. And we know by what it states there, we're not talking about economically. This isn't teaching like the monastic movement where the way you could really be devoted to God was sell all your goods, you know, live a life of complete simplicity, no personal possessions. That's not what this is related to. Because it's blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, this sense of being spiritually prosperous, blessed, is not tied to your personal circumstances or your personal accomplishments. And that is countercultural. So kind of think, if you see someone at work or in town, you say, yeah, how's your day going? More than likely, we're answering based on our circumstances. We're not answering based on my relationship with God. We're answering based on circumstances. And that's how many people, and sometimes even as Christians, we fall into this rut where, where we respond with how we're doing based on our circumstances or based on maybe our personal accomplishments, what we feel we've achieved, whether that be this day, this year, or in our careers, whatever it might be. Notice in Matthew's Gospel, right before this, in verse 23 of the previous chapter, you have this little progress report, and it says, And he, referring to Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, if you read that, that kind of sounds like, well, doesn't that sound like a lot of people are happy? I mean, he's healed them. He's cast out demons. And yet notice Jesus doesn't say, and they're blessed. Sort of think of the difference. I'm sure we've all heard this expression. We may have said it. Health is everything. 
It actually isn't. Because being spiritually prosperous is not tied to your physical health. And it's not tied to your economic security. And it's not tied to your personal accomplishments. As we'll see, it's tied to a right relationship with God through Christ. Let's delve a little bit further into this. Now, we know what the word blessed means, so we have that meaning down. Now we need to spend some time in what is this concept of being poor in spirit? And we can think of examples where Jesus, like the rich young ruler, um, said, you know, have you obeyed all the commandments? And he says, yes. And Jesus says, well, then go sell everything. And he walked away sad. And it wasn't that Jesus was saying you need to be poor to be a follower of Jesus Christ. What he was saying is there's nothing that should supersede your love and your relationship with me. And so that might help us now when we think of this concept Blessed are the poor in spirit. And you notice there, as in most English Bibles, that's going to be rendered with a lowercase s. Now, it's the exact same word as the word for spirit that refers to the Holy Spirit. It's the word pneuma. So in other words, the word is determined its meaning by its context. So the reason your translators give that the lower s is they're indicating to you this is talking about like your inner attitude, your, your spirit within you, your, your thoughts, and things like that. So Jesus is going down deep, and he's saying, well, spiritually prosperous are those who are poor in, in spirit, in, in a certain attitude and, and concept and mode of thinking. So it still leaves us, well, what, what does that mean? Well, let's step back for a moment into first century mindset. Uh, in Judaism, you probably are familiar with, in the Old Testament, there are a number of passages that say the people of Israel should always be sensitive to the poor. You know, you had laws of gleaning, where if you had a garden, you, you didn't glean everything in your garden. You left the outside edges for those who are poor, for widows, things like that. So you had a responsibility. But by the time the first century comes, the time in which Jesus is walking on earth, the, the Jewish concept of being poor took on a more negative aspect to it. In other words, being poor was seen as the result of being judged by God. It was a negative thing. So like if someone was poor and in need, it was kind of like, well, what's their fault? You know, they, they must have done something. Uh, God must be judging them for something. So it wasn't the sense of we, we need to help them. It was more there's something wrong with them. So again, countercultural. Jesus is saying, blessed are my disciples who would be marked by being poor in spirit. And what this conveys is that we acknowledge continually that we are needy. That, that we are a people who are destitute apart from Jesus Christ. Like that's something every day we should think about. How much I need Christ. Consider how this would change our attitude toward even scripture reading. Uh, I'm sure we've all had those days and those periods of time 
where we've said things like, I'm just too busy. You know, I, I really want to do it, but I'm, I'm just, I just can't squeeze it into my schedule. Now, that's kind of assuming we don't really understand then what it means to say we need Jesus Christ. Because we'll do other things. We need to sleep. We need to eat. We need to drink. Part of being poor in spirit is realizing, although you have come to know Christ as your learned Savior, you desperately need him every day in every type of situation. And, and just think about consciously asking God, help keep that before me. You know, whether you're going through a difficult situation at home, whether it's a difficult situation in your family, in the church, uh, that's kind of a constant reminder. You need Christ. You need his wisdom. You need his peace. Uh, that, that's acknowledging that you're poor in spirit. I like how one person put it related to communion. They were talking about what a privilege it is to come to the Lord's table. Uh, but then they put it this way. We don't come to the Lord's table just because we can. We come because we must. That conveys a whole different perspective. We, we need this. We, we need to reflect on what Christ has done. We, we need to humble ourselves before him. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And something Paul says here in verses 15 through 17, which would remind us of, of his understanding and living it out by example, what it means to be poor in spirit. So think of the context. He's writing letters to other pastors. This is to Timothy, uh, pastor at the church in Ephesus. And so you get to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And listen to what he says in verses 15 through 17. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, or the chief. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, Paul is not, woe is me. He's not saying this to kind of have a sympathy party and seek attention. But it's like he does not forget. He was a sinner. And he is a sinner apart from God's grace. And he's not just a sinner. He, he's, he's like at the top of the list not something we should keep before us in the right perspective. Again, think of the, the difference here where you have scripture give us this full picture. So for example, it says in Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. That, that you know your sins have been paid in full. And yet that doesn't mean, well, then I can just live and say whatever I want, like I'm unaccountable to anybody. No, no, you, you have to now live according to that new identity. And you have to realize you are a sinner. And as Paul would say, I'm, I'm one of the chief sinners here. I mean, if anything, this would be the kind of letter to a fellow pastor you would think he'd want to present like a, a real positive picture of himself. I mean, I can't ever recall being in a pastor's meeting where 
bunch of them stood up and said, I just want to let you know I'm, I'm like one of the worst sinners ever. Because we tend to want to look good before others. But Paul's saying this is what it looks like to be poor in spirit. To remember that. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 3 and consider now based on what we've said there where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That being poor in spirit would mean the following. It's a continual dependence upon Christ in our daily life. So we're talking about an attitude that will filter out into behavior clearly. But it's a continual dependence on Christ in daily life. Secondly, being poor in spirit is serving others in love. (coughs) Because now for poor in spirit, we're not just thinking of our own needs and our own world, but we're focusing on how can I love others in Christ Jesus? So you've got continual dependence in our daily life, consciously, intentionally reminding ourselves. Secondly, serving others in love and then surrendering daily to the Lord. So the poor in spirit was not just what you did when you acknowledged Christ as Lord and Savior. You certainly had to do that, but this is supposed to be a, a daily part of our sacrificial life in Christ, that we are living sacrifices. But you'll notice all the Beatitudes give you what is a mark of discipleship, but then they're followed by a promise that goes with it. And so notice in verse 3 the promise, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what is this promise to those who are poor in spirit? Well, one promise is immediate and present, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, This is the same phrase as the kingdom of God, uh, but you will notice in Matthew's gospel, he does not use that phrase, uh, and there's a good reason for it. Matthew's audience is primarily a Jewish audience. In in Judaism, even today, uh, many Jews or followers of Judaism will will not pronounce or completely spell (laughs) the name of God for fear of using it in vain, and so they will use substitute names. Well, Matthew is respectful of that here by not using the title kingdom of God, but kingdom of heaven. But he really is referring to the same thing. You will experience in the present, if you're poor in spirit and your faith is in Christ, you will experience the reign and rule of God in your life. That's a present reality that should happen as we walk in dependence upon Christ, as we serve others in love, And as we learn to every day surrender more and more. So there's a a promise to those who are poor in spirit. But notice that promise also extends into the future. Because it's not just a present promise, but, but there will be a fuller completion of that promise when as children of God we will reign forever and ever with Jesus Christ. So what a a sort of a dual reminder. What goes with this promise? Joy in life now. 
in Christ Jesus. The anticipation, as often marked in a lot of our choruses that we sing, of, of what awaits us on the other side of this world. Let me read for you the words from 2 Timothy chapter 4. And you're well aware that 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter to be in the New Testament. Uh, we know that he's back in prison again when he writes this letter. Uh, this time, the tone of the letter is much different from previous imprisonments where you can tell that Paul is confident that God's will will be done, uh, but also realizes that his will might be uh, his martyrdom. Uh, and so it has a, a very kind of serious tone to it in, in looking ahead. But it's in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says these familiar words. For I am already, beginning at verse 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. And so you have all that's contained just in this first beatitude, this first pronouncement of, of blessed, spiritually prosperous are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher well-known in London during the 20th century. Um, he, in fact, was preaching in his church during World War II when bombs were being dropped around the city of London. Uh, there were times in his sermon where he just paused until the bombs exploded and then just continued on with his message. But he had this interesting comment he said, he made, he said, the most obvious feature of the church of his day was its superficiality. I kind of think about that. He, he, he loves the church, but he was saying, this is a problem. The church of his day is superficial. Now, superficial is the exact opposite of authentic. Superficial is just kind of an appearance it gives, but there's no real reality there. And yet we've seen now, he said that almost 50 years ago, we've seen our world saying what they want to see is authentic. What they want us to see is something that's real in a world of AI and deep fake and everything else. Beatitudes are all an answer to that. Do you want to see what a real disciple looks like? Then look at the Beatitudes and apply them. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we <clears throat> thank you for both the simplicity of your word, but also the reminder that because we are sinners, uh, we cannot do this work in our own strength and grace. It is the work of your spirit, as Paul said. Uh, because he is the chief of sinners, it must be the work of your spirit that will show others that as we display these characteristics, they will see Christ in us. May that be your desire and our will as well this week. In Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I'm just going to read you this short 
statement out of the Baptist um, Confession of Faith. So it's a statement of faith. It's built on the Bible, but this was written back in 1689. It has had certain revisions over the years. Uh, but, I, but I like how they give this description of the Lord's Supper. It says, The Supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night in where he was betrayed to be observed in his churches unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing forth the sacrifice of himself and his death, the confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. And there we are reminded that just as we said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, the communion is a time that we're coming together in agreement with that. We're saying we are needy. We are sinners saved by grace. And because of that, there's a bond that exists among us that we seek to foster and develop. It's a statement of our love ultimately for God. And as we've said, every time we've done communion, is open to all those who know Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, it's a time to examine ourselves, but if our hearts are not where they need to be, you're always advised by Scripture, don't take communion. Deal with that sin issue, whatever it is going on, because all you're doing is, again, playing and making faith superficial, not, not authentic. So let me pray with you. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, it is easy for us at times to just go through communion, uh, to hold the cup, to hold the bread, um, but help us to think deeply and slowly about what it is this is about. It's a recognizing all of the benefits and blessings that are ours because of what Christ has done in our place. It's a reminder of all of the responsibilities that grow out of those blessings that are ours in Christ. And at the same time, it is a reminder that we are to never lose sight, uh, that we are needy in spirit. Just as we need you for initial salvation and become a child of God, we need you for that work of grace to be ongoing in our lives until you call us home and we receive the crown of righteousness. And so as we hold the bread, as we hold the cup, we thank you that the power is not in the elements or the material that we're holding on to, but is in the reality, the authenticity of Jesus Christ. We pray in our Savior's name. Amen.